Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the intensity that you experience in New York in terms of human nature, of being surrounded by people and their behavior, and is similar to me anyway to the intensity you experience in Wyoming with the complete absence of people. Like, it's just two extreme versions of this country, and I, I am attracted to extremes, so it really was satisfying in similar ways. Welcome to A Way to Go, a production of iHeartRadio and Fathom. I'm Geraldine Gerba. And I'm Pavia Rosati. One of the beautiful things about travel is using it to find ourselves, escape ourselves, immerse ourselves, showcase our best selves, and expose ourselves to challenges and uncomfortable realities of the world we live in. Traveling can be a way to connect or disconnect, a way to open ourselves to new relationships or be completely alone. Sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes it's not pretty. While the know-it-all may say, don't go there, the traveler will go. Be a witness and turn that experience into recognition and understanding. In her memoir, No One Tells You This, writer Glynis McNichol seeks readers from Canada to New York to Wyoming while chronicling her 40th year, experiencing thrills, loneliness, independence, grief, and exhilaration. Well, we're thrilled to have you here, Glynis. Thrilled! Thank I'm you so thrilled. much for joining us. Thank you. You said that when you turned 40, you, quote, promptly discovered it was nothing like what I'd been led to believe. Mm -hmm. Your book explores what makes a woman's life worth living, particularly when that woman chooses to participate outside of the framework society has set up for her, namely marriage and procreation. What were the expectations you had for your milestone year? Um, I'm now 45, so sometimes I have to really think back. And I'm glad I wrote the book when I did, because now I think, oh, was it really such a big deal? But it was such a big deal. And I think I approached 40 with a sense of dread and panic. And I was single. I didn't have children. There's very little narrative evidence that when you have neither of these things and you turn 40, that life is going to be enjoyable. <laughs> I think uh, we really... Uh, condition women to think of aging as a process of shame and dread, and we don't. I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just rolling my eyes because you don't. Yes, yes, it's really, no, yes, but I'm also like, oh, really? I know Still? it's exhausting, but sometimes I walk now. I feel like I've disengaged from that thinking so significantly. But I hear from so many women who've read the book and men, to be honest, um, who are experiencing that anxiety and dread and panic. And I just, and then I walk into, you know, a Barnes & Noble and look at the magazine rack. And, of course, there's no visual evidence that you can be uh, enjoying yourself in life as a woman past a certain age because we don't really talk about that. So while I was feeling all these things, I don't think it was a surprise I was feeling all of these things. And then I turned 40, and, of course, I was like, wow, Really, actually, I'm having sort of a great time. And at the same time, I was having very difficult um, experiences with regards primarily to my mother and a few other things. And none of that, I'd been prepared for neither of those things. I'd not, no one had ever suggested to me that I could enjoy myself, and no one had prepared me for the things that would actually be difficult. So mm. I spent an entire year complaining about that. I'm a writer, so no matter what assignment I was given. 
could be, could be about nothing to do with women or age. I would somehow like worm in some reference to the lack of narratives around female lives. And by the end of the year, I uh, in Wyoming, I had this, I joke it was an Oprah aha moment where I thought, well, you're a writer. Enough has happened this year. All you do is complain about the lack of stories. Why don't you put this down? And write the story. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, I've read the book, and mm-hmm. I love the book. Thank you. You go all over on this book, mm-hmm. but uh, there's vivid descriptions of being in Canada, mm-hmm. New York City. You hit the road, and you went out west mm-hmm. to Wyoming. Yes. Did you know Wyoming? But why Wyoming? Why, why, why Wyoming? Wyoming? <laughs> <laughs> mm. It started out as a, a road trip. A friend of mine, Joe Piazza. Who we've had on the podcast yeah. before. She came on to talk about how she thought it would be a good idea to— uh, test her marriage in its first year by climbing Kilimanjaro with her yes. husband. Good traveler. Yes. Curious so. listeners can find that. It's epi- it's one of the first episodes. Mm-hmm. And I think she also has a podcast with iHeart called has, Committed. She correct? has so many podcasts. Yeah. Prior to both of those things, she was a deputy editor for a large travel website and got engaged to her now husband, Nick, uh, who's lovely. And he lived in San Francisco, and so she was moving from New York to San Francisco and needed to drive and had a tiny yellow car and a very large dog. And I said I would drive with her, and we joked it was the grown-up version of you're walking down the aisle. Like, I was like, this was the— Oh, you're walking really down, down the, the long aisle. sort of uh, procession across the country. And because she she scheduled stories for us to do along the way, and one of them was she had booked us into the oldest dude ranch in Wyoming to do a story. I literally—I didn't plan any of this. My only requirement was that we stopped in South Dakota at Laura Ingalls' house, which is what I always—I've driven around the country many times. Oh, and we also stopped in Walnut Grove in Minnesota, which is a real place. Uh, so Why? Because that's where Laura Ingalls lived prior Oh, my to God. I want to talk about Laura Ingalls we, I could separately. literally have an entire podcast about Laura Ingalls. So we crossed out of South Dakota. We went through the Badlands. We went to Waldrug, Black Hills. We get into Wyoming, and I was like, what is this place? It is empty. And we were in the emptiest corner of Wyoming. And Wyoming is the least populated state in the country, and we were in the least populated part of it. There's, oh, my goodness. And Where were you? The northeast corner by Sheridan, Wyoming, which I'm Canadian, which is why part of this book is set in Toronto. But the Battle of Little Bighorn took place in that area of the state is why some people might know it. And I was mesmerized by the emptiness. It was literally like being on the moon. There was no other cars. There was no evidence of people for like two hours. And as we arrived in Buffalo, Wyoming, to go up to the Dude Ranch, there was like a huge storm coming (laughs) across the horizon. And we're in this tiny car, and Lady the dog started getting more and more anxious. And we're driving up into the mountains, and we lose the signal. And there's lightning flashing everywhere, and these rock overhangs. And it was literally the beginning of so many terrible horror movies Mm -hmm. that we like to you know, apply to women on the road. And we pulled into this ranch, but it was pitch black, and there was a saloon, and and a girl came out and said, well, here's your cabin, which looked like a Laura Ingalls cabin. So we go to sleep. I'm like, who knows what we're going to wake up to. And we wake up to this beautiful, clear morning in the most beautiful place I've ever been. It's in a valley in the Bighorn Mountains, and it's picturesque, and it's been there for 125 years. There was literally, it's called the morning jingle, where they bring in the horses from the hills for people to ride for the day. So I wake up, and there's like a herd of 100 horses galloping across the valley. Like you couldn't oh, make... that's not a bad way to wake up. Oh, my God. It was wow. literally, it was a morning that changed my life. And I remember I went and woke Joe up, and I said, where are are we? Like, what? I don't, like, where are we? And we were supposed to just stay till that evening and then drive to the Tetons 
And we was it was a Tuesday when we got there, and we stayed all the way to Friday because we couldn't leave. It was so amazing, and the whole all the guests and the staff were like mapping out how we had to be back in San Francisco for Monday morning for me to catch my flight. And they were calculating how long we could stay before we actually had to get on the road to make it back to San Francisco. So we stayed as long as possible, drove straight to San Francisco. And I got back to New York and I was so, I've never had such a strong reaction to a place other than New York City. I was back for two days and I had just signed a book contract for a separate book, a guide to puberty. The opposite of the, uh, uh, the complete the opposite, opposite of like of where turning, I was. Turning 40. Exactly. And I emailed the owner of the ranch because they had spoken to me about their lack of social media and how they wanted to get into it. And I just emailed him and I said, I'm happy to come out and start all of your social media for you in exchange for room and board. I don't have to be in New York for the month of August. And I just did it because I thought, what the hell? Like it, it, it can't hurt to ask. I have I don't have to be anywhere in particular for the next month. And they were lovely. And he emailed me back. Almost immediately, and he said, let us know your flight details. Someone will come and get you, which is not a small thing because the closest airport is two to three hours away. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, so I went back for the month. What a coup. I know. I was just like, okay. And that, I think, too, is parts of that year had been quite difficult up till then. And I just had this moment of being like, this is the power and the freedom of being able to make my own, not just make my own schedule, but not have to check in with people about staying or going. Like, I was like, I don't have to be here for a month, I'm, which can be, I think, overwhelming and scary for people at the same time. And I was like, I'm going to go to Wyoming for the month. And it was, it, it changed my life. That month has changed my life. And I've been back to Wyoming to that place twice a year since. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What was it like going back and having a month it was, to yourself? I woke up every day like, I can't believe this is real. The only comparison I have is the coming to New York at 23 and coming up from the sub. I'd never been to New York before. I'd never been to the United States before, which is kind of crazy in hindsight. It's an interesting first impression to have. Yeah, well, I, it is. Well, I got on the train from Queens. I landed very late at JFK on a Friday night, and I took the R train into Manhattan and got out at 60th Street and 5th Avenue, and it was a fr- like a Saturday in the fall and a perfect September day. And I remember looking oh, up 5th Avenue, and I literally—and I traveled quite a bit up until that point, and I literally said, I'm never leaving. 
That was 1997. Mm. I was like, I'm never leaving. I've never had that reaction to any place but Wyoming. So while you must have had some image of New York in your mind before you got here from Mm -hmm. movies and all of that, Mm -hmm. and by the way, the R train to 60th and 5th Avenue, you stepped into the picture of Manhattan. It's the Plaza Hotel on one side, Bergdorf on the other side, the Central Central Park Park. behind you, the 5th Avenue, the Mm -hmm. whole thing. Did you have any preconceived notions of what you would find when you went to Wyoming? I didn't even think about the fact I was going to Wyoming because I was very focused on going to South Dakota, which is my favorite state to drive across. It's such a wonderful state that starts out as like farmland on the east side, and then you go across 90, I think it is, and it gets increasingly empty. The buffalo grasslands, you see signs for wall drug the whole way so that you're incapable of not stopping at wall. These hand-painted signs, five cents for coffee for the whole, the entire stretch. And then you get the badlands and... You get to Waldrick, and then you're in the Black Hills. And so I was really focused on that as, like, my f- I'd been there many times, and I loved it so much. So when we crossed the state line, I was like, okay, now we're just going to San Francisco. So I was completely unprepared for how overwhelmed I would be by it, by the emptiness. I often think I would tell people in Wyoming who were from Wyoming and never been to New York that I thought it was just like New York except the complete opposite, <laughs> and they thought I was crazy. <laughs> But in the intensity that you experience in New York in terms of human nature, of being surrounded by people and their behavior and, like, all around you, is similar to me anyway to the intensity you experience in Wyoming with the complete absence of people. Like, it's just two extreme versions of this country, and I I am attracted to extremes. So it really was satisfying in similar ways. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Can you describe your day-to-day? At the ranch. At the ranch. It's ridiculous. Back at the ranch. I would get up at it's August, so the sun, you're really aware of the sunrise and sunset because there's no artificial light. So I would get up at about 5.45 and go watch the jingle. It's called the jingle because the lead mare of the horses it traditionally wears a bell because horses are pack animals, so they all congregate together no matter where they are. So the wranglers would go out and round up the 100 horses where they'd been allowed out into the hills overnight and then run them back into the paddock to be fed. So I'd watch the jingle go by. Then I'd hike up, because uh, it was in a valley, I'd hike up to the mesa for my morning hike and come back down for a 7 a.m. breakfast. And then <laughs> I know it's, it's, it's truly... It was civilized, heavenly. Yeah, it really. And then I would. You also, by the way, don't need to remind yourself to do meditation every morning because you, that is essentially it's no a meditative it's a ultimate morning meditation. And sometimes when I would get up to the mesa, I would sometimes go up to watch the sunrise, and you would hear the coyotes howling with the sunrise, which not being a person from Los Angeles was deeply fascinating to me. It was really, I was so magical, and it's so quiet. There's such an absence of human noise that every once in a blue moon, a, a flight path would cross way up high, and I would be so resentful of the plane having the audacity. How dare you? To like, which it was, and also, I would hike every day in the afternoon for a couple of hours, which was lovely, and I didn't bring a radio with me, which was... They were okay with it, but I would. You always have to tell someone when you're leaving to go hiking, so that they know if they know that you're gone, so that if you don't return in a certain amount of time, they send out a search party because there's no signal there. It is, it's the it's the bighorn, so there's no grizzlies on that side of the state. They're on the other side of the state in the Rockies, but still an awareness of like you are out Danger. in the wilderness. Yeah. And it took two weeks for me to go hiking and not automatically from a, being a New Yorker who walks quite a lot, turn my head to see if there was anyone behind me. 
And after two weeks, I was I, I suddenly realized, oh, you're not you're so comfortable in this environment. You've like losing your city habits of checking your one three sixty surroundings at all times, which was a nice feeling. Also, you become more aware, like. To be clear, I'm not going to save anyone in the apocalypse by, like, reading the stars. But you become more aware of, like, what direction the sun is rising and setting to where to orient yourself when you are out there. And a couple times I did get lost, but not—I wasn't off the horse trail, so I had a moment of thinking, maybe this is the time the Wranglers come and find me. But you follow the hoof prints back, and they eventually take you back to the ranch. Yeah, it's really lovely. It is really lovely. So I would go and watch the—I would come back for breakfast, and then I would write. I would go back to my cabin and light a fire. And when I describe this, it sounds so ridiculous, but it was really love. I would light a fire and write in the morning, and then I would—lunch, everyone eats all the meals together. I would go down for lunch and then spend the afternoon out taking photos for them and setting up their Instagram and stuff, and uh, then I would go hiking at 4 o'clock and come back for dinner at 7, and then there would be some activity in the saloon that night, whether it was dancing or a talent show or music, or sometimes I would drive down with some of the other staff to the Occidental Hotel, which is in Buffalo and has been there for 150 years maybe, maybe a little bit less. Teddy Roosevelt used to go out there, Ernest Hemingway stopped there. It's got a very storied history, very Western history and so much taxidermy. Yeah, that's what my day looked like. It sounds so nice. It's so nice because you have time to yourself. Mm -hmm. There's built-in community. There's a little bit of something to do. I love a roaring fire in the middle of the summertime. It's amazing. And you, I mean, even in August overnight, it it wouldn't quite drop down to freezing. It gets cold. It gets chilly. Yeah. (sighs) What a dream. What's interesting in your description about having had no expectations of Wyoming is that I think that's an increasingly rare thing. Mm-hmm. We usually know so much about the places we're going to before we get there. We've mapped out our trip. We've seen it on Instagram. We're really super prepared. I'm so just delighted in mm-hmm. the idea that this was discovery for you. Mm-hmm. I think in the national conscious Wyoming often takes second place or is confused with Montana, which has a much broader brand in this country. Because even when I I wrote part of the book is about going to Wyoming, I talk about Wyoming all the time. And even my friends who know this are always like, how was your time in Montana? Are you going back to Montana? Really? So it's a little, Hmm. I mean, nobody in Wyoming, like Wyoming, except for Yellowstone, which is obviously in Jackson, which is such a heavy tourist area. But also unbelievably beautiful. Unbelievably beautiful. Jackson's an incredible place to go. It is, but it's a little bit, I think— Bougie? No, I mean, wealthy. Yeah, just a little bit. (laughs) It's a little bit like someone's idea of New York being the Hamptons, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Or of New York, not Times Square because that's tacky, but when you're in the rest of Wyoming, there is a divide of the way people talk about Oh, you've been to Jackson, or have you been to Wyoming? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's because that's not—they don't think about it in quite the same way. I was in Wyoming. When you were having dinner Mm -hmm. at the ranch, was it usually the same crew of people who were working on the ranch? I mean, was it a working ranch, or were were they mostly— Visitors and travelers and tourists. So it's a dude ranch. So it's it takes every week it has a new round of guests. And then their staff comes in May and works through till October. So I so segued into sort of the staff group pretty immediately and ate with them. I'm still quite close to many staff members and got one of them to move to New York City not that long ago. For fun or for love? She's 
20 years younger, and I helped her get a job in publishing. So. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but I still talk to, I still talk to um, people quite often. I think I was a bit, not think, I was an anomaly when I arrived there. But one of the things I've come to really value about being in very rural Western places is even though the politics, Wyoming's the reddest state in the country on every level. It's state, local, they've um, statewide, federal. There is this sense of taking people as they come. And I think that comes from seeing so few people that you you get in the habit of being open to whoever you meet because you encounter them with some infrequency out there. Like people who drive two hours for dinner is not a strange thing at all. So I... People really took me as I was, and I never felt and have never felt. Um, like the wacky liberal from Brooklyn? I, they just, they, I, it was like I was accepted as that. I would never feel like I needed to say or not express my, say, in 2016, deep desire to see Hillary Clinton as president of the United States. And the, my experience with those conversations was, yeah, or I'd say, you know, I live in New York City. I don't like guns at all. And people would say— Ah, that's fine. I've got 23 in my trunk. And I'd be like, yeah, no, I know where I am. But there was never, I think, some of the different sort of pushback you can get in more populated conservative areas. It's it's a much different sensibility in and my experience. Is, and this is why you've been going back so much. That, the openness, it's impossible to find that that emptiness almost any. The only place I came close was when I went to Iceland. But truly, Wyoming is truly empty. I mean, this is... I have done a two-hour drive from Buffalo to Casper and seen at certain times of the day just like a handful of cars. It does feel like being on the moon. It's, it's really an extraordinary experience. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And since you've been back several times, are you exploring other parts of Wyoming, or do you always go back to this dude ranch? I know most of Wyoming at this point. Wow. I've driven around it. But it's that's not—people will say I'm going to Yellowstone for an overnight camping trip, and it's a seven-hour drive away. Like, you really get in—you get in the sort of sensibility of, like, driving far distances because you have to, really. Hmm. So, yes, I know Wyoming quite well. Right. <laughs> yeah. We've been around. Can you give us a description of the the sense of community, the guests that are there, kind of what everything looks like? The guests that come to the ranch are frequently from the middle of the country, which was an interesting experience, too, as a New Yorker. I think we don't consider all the time 
the experiences of living, with due respect, the experience of living in Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan. These were often the guests. Hunting is quite a regular thing, and it's uh, much different from New York lifestyles. But the guest switch, I'm much closer to the staff. I know some of the regular guests. There's people that have been coming back there for 40 years. Is it a lot of families? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's family. They have families up until the second week of August, and then it turns into adults only. And during fi- when they, they're very kid-friendly. It's a very kid-friendly dude ranch. Lots of activities for kids. But I know the staff a little bit better. So what is a dude ranch? Yeah, it's funny because when I first landed there, I had no idea what a dude ranch was. I'd never heard of it. And over the course of the last few years, I realized it's a fairly common uh, vacation destination for much of the country. <laughs> and also goes back more than a century as as a, a common experience. It's called dude because that used to be, and many of them now are called guest ranches now because dude can be considered an insult because it was the word used to describe an East Coast man who didn't know what he was doing. It was like a mocking term of like a, an East Coaster who would show up in their fancy clothes but have no practical skills. A city slicker. It is. It's the old term for city slicker. Mm-hmm. And so they would call it a dude ranch because wealthy people from the East Coast primarily would come out there to experience Western life and, and sort pretend, of play at it. And, and pretend mm. they were cowboys. Yeah, which is not—the difference now is that there's—Western life has so significantly shifted that this is—this running dude ranches is now much of— Western life. I mean, I can't speak with great authority to that, but that's certainly my impression. But a dude ranch is where you go and you ride horses into the mountains or there's dude ranches all over the country in Arizona. There's many famous ones in Montana, in Wyoming. Uh, Fly fishing. Yeah. And you have like square dancing at night and talent shows. I, I only know this one. It's called Paradise Guest Ranch outside of Buffalo. And it is the oldest dude ranch in the country or in the state of Wyoming. And it's been in the family since the 70s. So there was a reference in one of your articles to a concept David Brooks of the New York Times wrote about called the Odyssey Years, which is a period of improvisation that is a sensible response to modern conditions. And I wanted to know, do you feel like you're still in your Odyssey Years? Listen, I I actually hadn't heard that phrase before, but that's interesting because I always love referencing Odysseus and the Odyssey, which is the template for travel travel and adventure and everything. But Joseph Campbell, who I love, Here with a Thousand Faces, or the, the Power of Myth, he used to talk about how women's odyssey was motherhood, childbirth and motherhood, but men's odyssey was going out and exploring and finding themselves. Typical. And, yeah, it's driving me freaking crazy. I was like, no wonder I'm obsessed with Laura Ingalls and Princess Leia. Like the only two women we get to see, they literally go out on the road. I think... We're all in Odyssey years. Like Life is the Odyssey. And the difference for me in women who are not married or who don't have kids is that the Odyssey we're on is not documented. And what feels overwhelming about that experience is never having um, a reference or a blueprint or an experience to look to, to um consult with to guide your to guide your way. This idea that a woman cannot be married and not have kids and have financial independence without being born into a wealthy family and on top of that be able to travel where she wants is so new. It's so I say this in almost every interview but women in this country couldn't have credit cards in their own name till 1974, which is also the year I was born. Like this idea of m- me being able to dictate how my life looks within reason, is so new that I think the 
adventure, the scariness of my experiences and the thrill of it is not knowing, not having examples of what that has looked like over time. Whereas I think for better or for worse with marriage and motherhood, we definitely have lots of examples whether or not you like all of them. So, yeah, we're all on an odyssey, though. I mean, this country's on an odyssey. So. <laughs> Glynis, how do you make yourself feel at home when you're in all these different places around the world? I walk everywhere. I walk wherever I am. I, I walk the city. I I don't tend to take public transportation until I know the city well enough to walk around it. And um, because I'm a writer and I can often work from different places, instead of going to Paris for a weekend, the last few years I've gone for a month at a time. And when I visit, I was in Berlin this uh, summer for maybe five days, and I walked something like 50 or 75 miles when I was there. I like to know the city on foot. I think it gives you a much better understanding of why it is the way it is and much more exposure to the people who live there and makes me feel like I'm actually getting to know it as opposed to just passing through, which is not to say I'm opposed to a very nice hotel room, but that's Mm -hmm. often I think Airbnb has opened this up to and also dropped hotel prices. But like I just walk everywhere. That's my or I've in Berlin and in Amsterdam, I rented bikes because I bike New York quite a bit and I bike Paris when I'm there. So both those things. You know, we're seeing a lot more articles and attention being given to the experience of women traveling, either traveling by themselves all over the world and how to do it and how to do it safely or going on group trips Mm -hmm. that are created by women, that are attended by women, where the activities center around women chefs, designers, Mm -hmm. artists. What do you think about this? I mean, I love it. I, at this point... I don't remember the last time I traveled with someone. Like it would really, at this point, you really, there's such a short list of people I would say, yes, you can come with me because I'm so accustomed to doing what I want when I want it. Now, I say that, but I also joke I have an international club of sort of single women in every city I spend time in that I meet up with when I'm there. Like, I have a whole group of women in Paris. I definitely, Wyoming, Los Angeles. Like, um, And part of that is, you can travel by yourself. I think the iPhone significantly changed things in terms of communication and knowledge about where you were and this lack, you know, less isolation if you feel, I mean, I remember driving across the country with just a map and it was wonderful, but there's a much greater sense of risk with that, I think. I think that we are in a moment of women really just enjoying the fact that they are not obligated to spend time with men because they are paying their own way. And what this is looking like across the board, the ability of women to pay their own way, we're seeing shifts in every sort of experience of what that looks like when women can determine what they want their lives to look like because they're not financially dependent on a man which has traditionally been... Right, we could be the masters of our own destinies. Yeah, baby. Mm-hmm. That's right. Although I often see, it's funny, when I was a teenager and in my 20s traveling, backpacking or whatever, you would see sometimes these groups of what I considered older women. They were probably in their 50s traveling together. And they they were always, like, loud and laughing. And they always looked like they were having just the best time and just gleefully going around. And I remember not really understanding that and it not really appealing to me in my 20s. And now I'm like, oh, I get it. Like, you are having so much fun. You're simply not considering all of the things about 
men. It's just, it's a really enjoy, I think it's, I don't think about it that much anymore, actually. I just go. But yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. Glennis, if we wanted to continue following you, mm-hmm. where can we find you? I have an Instagram called No One Tells You This, which is obviously the title of the book. That's where. Glennis, it is always a pleasure to hear your stories. Thank you so much for coming in to Thank talk to us today. Thank you guys for having me. This is so fun. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And, you know, leave us a five-star review. A Way to Go is a production of iHeartRadio and Fathom. You can find the details we talked about in the show notes and on our website, fathomaway.com. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter when you're there. You can get in touch with us anytime at podcast at fathomaway.com and follow us on all social media at at fathomwaytogo. Please tag your best travel photos, hashtag travel with fathom. If you want to really go deep on the travel inspiration, pick up a copy of our book, Travel Anywhere and Avoid Being a Tourist. I'm Geraldine Gerba. And I'm Pavia Rosati. And we'd like to thank our producer, editor, and mixer, Marcy DePina, and our executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.